I'm Chase, and you're listening to The Angry Millennial, and I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I'm in this room or what they just fed me, but you're listening to The Angry Millennial. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to The Angry Millennial Podcast with your host, Jose Rosado, and co-host, Stevie Chris, where we talk to creatives and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and passions about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be sure to check out our site, theangrymillennialshow.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be eligible for prizes and giveaways, as well as stay up to date with new shows and upcoming guests. Hope you enjoy the show. Bocafire.com. Bocafire is a better way to rent professional DSLR lenses. With 30-day rentals, unlimited swapping, free shipping, and free insurance coverage, Bocafire is the best deal around. Use any Pro, Canon, or Nikon lens for your DSLR camera with no return dates and no stress. Keep it as long as you want. When you're done, send the lens back using the prepaid shipping label and swap it for your next one. Offering all the most popular Canon and Nikon lenses, including primes, zooms, telephotos, and a lot more. Use the coupon code ANGRY15 to get 15% off any Bocafire membership. Valid now through July 2016, only at Bocafire.com. All right, today... We are here with Sam Aquilano of Design Museum Boston. So thank you for coming out, Sam. Thanks for having me. No, it's been great. So um, funny how I came across you. Uh, Devin, who works here at Work Bar, uh, Work Bar Boston, um, when he heard what we did, or what we do, and uh, and the guests we had on yesterday, he immediately said, you have to talk to my oh, buddy, nice. Sam. Devin's a good friend. Yeah, and he said, you know, he's doing some amazing things, and uh you know, he, he would be a great person to talk to. And I checked out your nonprofit, which is um, Design Museum, right? Mm-hmm. And then just tag the name, tag the city. Uh, Design Museum Foundation. Oh, okay. And then we have different branches in different cities. Right. Interesting model for a museum, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. So why don't you tell me a bit about, um, you know, first we'll, we'll, before we get into the museum part, tell me about, you know, your career and that sort of thing. Uh, assuming you're a pretty young guy. Yeah, how old am I now? Uh, <laughs> 33? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So about my age. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, you know, what kind of, let's go back to like, let's go back to it all, right? It College, a, that kind of thing. It was a stormy night <laughs> in the year now. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up uh, in a small town in Pennsylvania, Erie. Oh, okay. Uh, Lake yeah, Erie. Yeah. And um, to kind of skip through, like I, I was always creative. I mean, my, my mom is very creative. Dad's very creative. Um, and, you know, I really feel like I knew I was a designer before I even really knew what the word design was. Nice. So, you know, I had the opportunity to do a lot of kind of sort of art. And um, I think a game changer was we ended up moving to uh, this town outside Albany, New York, which had an amazing high school and had like engineering classes and architecture classes. And it just put me on this great track of design and creativity. I ended up going to college at Rochester Institute of Technology for industrial design. And I like came alive. Like it was just like the perfect, I had That's found like awesome. the perfect place and like the perfect major. Like I'm lucky. I know a lot of people kind of struggle like, oh, what do right. I want to do with my life? Right. And through a number of, you know, different things, I found this uh, great profession that just matched perfectly, I think, with my skills and what I wanted to do. Uh, out of college, I got an amazing job uh, at Bose Corporation. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was okay. Basically, my dream job, yeah, where I got to work with really smart people and engineers, and 
Design Consumer Electronics. Where are they based out of? They're in Framingham, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. So it's about, I think, 30 miles west of Boston. Oh, okay. And uh, it was just a great, I mean, what an amazing place to learn. And I always say that was like my first master's was my mentors and managers there were just incredible. And that's awesome. Had a lot of patience with me because I was, you know, coming out of school, I, you know, I was kind of like firecracker. Right. You wanted to change the world in one day. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to just change everything and (laughs) I didn't want to take no for an answer and the systems in place were garbage. (laughs) And I always just think back because now I'm a manager. I'm like, man, they had the most patience of like anyone I know with like this crazy 20 year old designer. So I worked there for, oh geez, almost nine years. Uh, During that time, I also got into teaching. Oh, okay. So I taught design at uh, Wentworth Institute of Technology and, and is, is that a college or a high school as well? Uh, college. Nice. Yeah, both places I taught uh, were undergrad um, and loved it. I mean, I just, nice. again, I, just, I love learning and I love, you know, that energy that's right. in, in colleges and in schools. And um, Now, is that so something awesome. you did at night, like in, as yeah, an adjunct? Yeah, so I taught, right. I taught at night mm-hmm. and then um, had this notion around, you know, I was teaching design to design students. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of sort of like education within the corporate environment of trying to educate people about why design was important, how it sort of drives business and it makes customers happier, users happier. Right. And I sort of had this, this kind of vision or, you know, going back and like a lot of people don't really know what design is that are not in the design world. And so here I was design, you know, teaching design to people who, kind of already knew what it was, right. and no one was really educating the public yeah, or having a conversation oh, with the public about right. what design was. And um, myself and my co-founder, my, my best friend, Derek Cassio, we were doing a lot of different projects together, and we said, you know, wh- what could we start that would sort of like broaden the conversation about design right. and incorporate the public? Because also design is very mysterious. You know, it kind of <laughs> happens like behind the scenes, right. and like you show up and... Here's the solution. Yeah, kind of like the architect in the Matrix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's just this like behind the scenes, but at the same time, it shapes everything yeah. around us. Um, so we said, what kind of structures exist for us to you know, educate the public, inspire people? Right. And you know, I wish we could say, oh, we landed on museum right away. But you know, we're a lot of discussions around what are the most open and accessible institutions in the world. Right. And what we came to was a museum. And we said, look, a museum is a place where, for example, a science museum, right. you don't have to be an expert scientist to it's, go to a science yeah, museum. Yeah, you just got to go and enjoy it. And learn about gravity. Like right. You just go in, it's accessible, you learn at your own pace. And that is exactly the kind of environment that we wanted to create for people, but about design. Right. And so we started, and to get a little bit into the design museum story, we wanted to create a museum, like a traditional museum, like let's get a building, like where are the columns, like get the marble <laughs> and just where are the steps, right, you know, there's right. a huge, you know, you just have this vision in your head of what a museum is. Right. And, you know, we start fundraising, we start looking for spaces and this was 2009. And oh, it was just like yeah, the yeah. worst mm-hmm. possible time mm-hmm. yeah. to start a new nonprofit, let alone an arts museum, you know, arts right. nonprofit. And we said, look, you know, this isn't happening. We were yeah. pretty... You know, we, I remember a couple of meetings between Derek and I, and we had a group of great volunteers where like my, just, my heart was just on the floor. I was like, yeah. oh, we have this vision. Like, I know this is an amazing opportunity and we can make a big impact. And I think it was Derek who, he, had, he always goes out in New York and kind of just like mm-hmm. doing his thing and being observant. He's a great designer. He's always feeding his brain with creativity and had 
at the time, sort of the pop-up shop yes. had was yes. kind of coming into its right. own. You know, even the likes of like Target right. were like doing pop-up shops mm-hmm. and like Wired Magazine pop-up shops and came back and we had a couple other meetings and I think we were sort of like, we don't need our own building. We can just borrow space and yeah. pop up in public spaces and empty retail spaces. Underutilized spaces were right. like everywhere. And yeah. so we said, that's it. You know, and we're going to be a nomadic museum. And me, sort of like as the business guy. Um, oh, but during all this, I also got my MBA oh, at nice. Babson College. I was like, nice. throw that in there because yeah. it was just yeah. on top of the pile. Yeah. Um, but I was sort of like, man, talk about a capital efficient model. No real estate cost. Mm-hmm. Very low overhead. Yeah. Low marketing costs also because yeah. you we go media. to, yeah, right. we use social media yeah. like crazy. And then we also go to you. Right. So we don't have to advertise for you to come to us. So we really hit on something and uh, that was six years ago and it's, That's been, awesome. it's been an interesting journey ever since. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's funny you mentioned, uh, so 2009 when you were trying to do this was a similar thing for me. I went to, I graduated college in 06 and then said, you know, the landscape wasn't looking great. I was doing well in school. I said, hey, why not keep going? I got my MBA nice. and I worked at a, my first job at a college was at a photo studio, like a high-end photo studio. And it was funny because that I got into that my senior year of college, so it wasn't anything you know, very new, or it was very new for me. And uh, when I graduated, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, the worst. I, I felt <laughs> terrible. I was so I was teaching at the time as well, right. and I'm graduating these students. And yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that know? was that was literally every professor I had in grad school. Yeah, we would because obviously with an MBA, we're talking about you know all the finance and everything else is going on in the world, and all of them just kept saying, "I'm sorry that every week we talk about doom and gloom." Yeah. <laughs> It's all this stuff. And all you can do is apologize. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, oh man, I'm so sorry. But, you know, the way you struck the model now, I mean, you think of like, like uh, the digital disruption, right? I mean, you yeah. have, you know, Uber owns no taxis mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Airbnb, I just stayed in last night, owns no, you know, exactly. real estate. So it's kind of like the same. No, we've disrupted the museum model for yeah. sure. I mean, you know, we have a lot of, you know, when we interact with like other museum professionals, they're like, well, but you don't have a collection. And that's what, that's what, I mean, that is the definition of a museum. Like you go to Wikipedia or whatever, it's, uh, it's an institution that has a important collection that does exhibitions to show off that collection. Right. Which I think is a super narrow and totally (laughs) like misses so many things that museums do. Right. But on the collection side, my response is always, we have a collection and it's all around us, right? Like everything in this room, you know, we're recording this podcast. There's all these products Mm -hmm. that are recording our voice. We're in a building that was designed there's furniture, mm-hmm. graphics. So my collection is everything. Yeah. We might not own it, right. but there's plenty of, of museums in the world who don't have a collect. They're non-collecting museums that right. just borrow artifacts. Yeah, there's. So um, that's us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's funny because you know you the second you mentioned when you hit the the aha moment, right? And you said, okay, we're going to use. Uh, uh, you know, underutilized space, which I think is a big, big deal, especially in a city. Absolutely, there's you figure so much there's so space. much, and it's <laughs> insane. And you figure, okay, if you can bring it up again, and even in a design aspect, just bring design into a dead, underutilized space, and, and that's then, what we activate space. Right. I mean, over and over, what we hear back from city of Boston, city of, now we're in Portland and San Francisco as well, is that we're activating spaces in a way that not only is educational. But it's inspiring and it right. it enlivens a place in a way that doesn't happen enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always think of, I don't know about you, I'm a big foodie, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, I always hear about the big chefs 
right, who go to the big cities, whether it's Paris or New York, whatever, they start killing it, they open their restaurant, and then they go back home to whatever podunk town, whether it's Detroit or rundown yeah. place, and then you see them opening up like pop-up kind of things Absolutely. in like abandoned uh, factories and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. It's amazing. You know? the, the fact that that's possible. Mm-hmm. And you do, you, I, of course, reflect a lot on like what makes our model possible. And it comes back to your point, like social right. media mm-hmm. and, you know, technology and the ability to kind of think differently about some of these structures, I think has opened. When you disrupt that model like that, it has created all these amazing opportunities for things that I never thought we would be into. Yeah. That we are. It's, it's I mean, awesome. anything about it, when, when you have, hmm, when you have a, Let's just say a, a, a stable home base, right? Like a like a traditional museum, yeah. right? You get popular enough that people will come to you and they'll travel and come to you and that kind of thing, and that's neat. But I think what's even cooler is like I have friends in New York. I used to work in New York City, and they would they would follow the food trucks so religiously that on Twitter they would follow it and go, "Oh, such and such is like two blocks away. Now let's go over there for lunch exactly. today." And and it's I I immediately thought of the same thing, where Absolutely. if you have a, an engaged audience. And you say, okay, we were here. Guess what? Now we're here. Yeah. It's almost like you're following your favorite band. You know, exactly. your favorite underground band. You'll go wherever they're going. And it keeps things interesting. Yeah. I mean, a band is, I love the music analogy because you might go see the same band, but you see them in different venues mm-hmm. and it's, it's a different experience every time. Right. And it's new music and there's, you know, different stage lighting. Mm-hmm. And that's for, for us too. I think I love museums and I, I go to museum, the same museums more than once. I mean, right. I just love going to museums, but how many people are like, oh, you know, I go to the art museum once a year, you know, yeah, or and yeah, yeah. overall museum attendance is declining. I mean, right. it's just a sad fact. You know, there's just for a lot of different reasons, you know, lack of leisure time and, and whatnot. But our model is trying to turn that on its head and saying, like, we know you're busy. We know you're out there in the world. And my favorite, you know, this is this is radio, so I yeah. can't do the but yeah. my favorite, you know, expression is when someone turns a corner and might see one of our pop-up exhibitions and they kind of like step oh, yeah. back and yeah. you got that like delight face yeah, you know i guess yeah. that's what i'll call it yeah. and it's like people want opportunities to have cultural experiences and to learn but man we're busy mm-hmm. you know the economy is such that everyone's just working their tail off yeah so i think our model came at the right time where it presents some pretty amazing new opportunities for right. people to check well, out that, that's a good question so you know, another thing, you know, everyone's working so much, but ever since then, I think people are a lot more protective of the money they're bringing in. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah. you know, let's be honest, museums are expensive a lot of they times. Are. So, you know, I know me personally, I'll go on whatever days they have like discounts or whatever. And, and I feel like I'm not alone there because it's always pretty busy. Oh, it's always <laughs> super busy. That's <laughs> yeah. when I go as well. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, so my question to you is, um, obviously that as a nonprofit, but the first thing people ask is, okay, well, for through fundraising that kind of thing, how is it that you're able to give this to people for pretty much free just to have yeah. them interact with it? Mm-hmm. Is there when people are there, is there any kind of um, like ask you make of people who are there, like oh hashtag this or check out this or why don't you read a pamphlet? You know that kind of thing. Or is absolutely, it- I mean it's it's critical to what we do. I mean, so all our our exhibitions are free, mm-hmm. and that's been always been super important to us because right. just out there in the world to actually put a door quote unquote right. is sometimes impossible because right. sometimes we do stuff outside and yeah. people are just out there. Um, so we're funded through a, a pretty healthy mix of, uh, I'll say three things, mm-hmm. um, 
program sponsors. That could be a, a corporation or an individual who really wants to support a particular exhibition right. and just wants to kind of like give that to the world mm-hmm. through us. Right. Um, and get visibility. You know, our, I think our corporate partners really enjoy the visibility that being involved with the Design Museum, you know, brings. Membership. So in, individuals, major donors, companies can become a member, just mm-hmm. like any museum. Right. Um, it's a little did, turned on its head because typically say, what, you become a right. member at a museum, so you can go for free. Right. Um, and all of our exhibitions are already free. But we do have events, so we do oh, lots of okay. different events. And in those cases, they are, you know, we might charge or we might right. um, have tickets for those. So that's a big that's a big member benefit. Um, is that we do so many special. I think we did like sixty events last year wow. across our three cities. So nice. Yeah, we do a lot of events, a lot of thought leadership, a lot of workshop type stuff. Um, and then the last uh, piece of the pie is really the grants. Right. So we write a lot of grants. I'm sure, like most nonprofits, yeah. and um, we've been fortunate to get funding through some major, you know, the National Endowment for the Arts, Art Place, here in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and I think. From my, you know, from the outside, as you know, the grants come in and it's fantastic. I right. think that they see us as an interesting model that's right. kind of meeting people in a new way and inspiring them. So, for people who don't know, um, obviously the grant process isn't the easiest thing oh, it's so to navigate. Hard. <laughs> Uh, so why don't you tell us a little about that? And, and I guess if you, if you can, whatever you're, um, allowed or eligible to say about like, aren't they like, is it allotment of money? Is it allotment of time plus money? Sure. So you have to renew them every once in a while. Yeah. 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 The grant process is really interesting. And I guess if there are people in your audience who are entrepreneurs and are sort of starting their own nonprofits, I would actually say, um, you know, if you're starting a nonprofit, sort of like the way that Derek and I did, where we didn't have our own money to give. Right. I mean, Derek and I made a pledge to each other that I think every year until we started getting paid by the museum, him and I would only give $500 a year. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad we made that pledge because right. it's super easy just oh, to yeah. like pour everything you mm-hmm. own. But you don't really own a nonprofit. You right. know, the, the state of Massachusetts owns right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Design Museum Foundation. So the point I'm trying to make is Grants are a long lead time item. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and you need cash quickly. You need basically, um, you need cash flow. Yeah. And so we really didn't focus on grants in the beginning. It was just sort of like not on our radar because you have to identify the grant. Right. Great. <laughs> then you got to spend a ton of time <laughs> writing the grant. Right. Oh, by the way, you have to find the grant online in enough time to like spend the time. I'm the classic. And I hope when my development director hears this, like I always find grants like three days before they're due. And I'm like, we got to mobilize. <laughs> but so you find it with enough time, hopefully. Right. Which is great. All right. Then you spend a ton of time writing it. You know, you might, you know, another unknown thing that your listeners might get something out of is you really want to meet the people that you're sending your grant to. Right. A lot of people are like, I'll just send in the grant and just hope for the best. Right. No, no. You want grant people who give grants and grant organizations want to build a relationship. Right. So if possible, you really want to meet with a grant officer and ask mm-hmm. questions and propose your program before right. you even write something. Right, right, right. That's not always possible, but it is Especially best practice. Especially when you have three days. Yeah, <laughs> with, when you have three days, you're like, write it, send it. Yeah. Anyway, you submit, and then you wait a really long time. What's the average time? like? I mean, we've waited you know, a year, mm. nine months, mm. and... You know, we'll get a grant sometimes, and I'll be like, "I gotta go to back and like review <laughs> like what we right. proposed." Because yeah. a lot of times, what we'll do now, now that we're a little bit more of a mature organization, is we'll create a new program and write a grant for it. Um, and if we get the grant, we'll execute. Right. Um, but 
So, okay, let's say then you get it. Mm-hmm. They send you the letter. Right. Great. Celebration. But you don't get the money right away. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you do. Right. Sometimes you like you wait nine months and then the, the envelope comes and it's like you got the grant. There's a check in there. And yeah. those, I mean, those are rare. Yeah. And you really celebrate those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most of them. It's like though, the World Series. You're all wearing oh, ski goggles. Yeah. And you're you're like champagne. spraying the champagne. <laughs> but most of the time, it's sort of like a reimbursement grant where you're incurring expenses and right. tracking them very closely right. and then submitting those um, reports and then getting a reimbursement back. Right. So it's just time, 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 time. As a new nonprofit, during that time, 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 whatever, <laughs> you're out of business. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I think one thing we did really well and, and did right is uh, really focused on sponsorships first. Right. Because it's a little easier, quicker turn and mm-hmm. we were able to kind of build an organization around it. Right. And now as we're maturing, we're getting going after and getting a lot more grants. Nice. That's yeah. good. And I'm sure it's good. Like you just said, it's kind of like that where the biggest thing, and even with me starting this, I talked about it. Well, and let's say this, I thought about it for a year. I talked about it for three months. And yeah. then I just, when I said, okay, I'm going to execute, it was like two weeks and that was it. Yeah. And it's crazy how you can sit there and I could have like any creative endeavor, I could have still made millions of excuses, and um, you know all the equipment I have. While it looks nice, is by mind you, very uh, bang for your buck, if you will. I love it. That's what I love. That's the only nice thing. That's actually what I love about your setup. Is that it seems it's so like stripped down and just only the necessities. Yeah, you know. So it's good uh, design. Yeah, thank you. So um, I, you know, I, I sat there and said to myself, well, you know, is this smart? And I said, you know, well, let's just do it. You know, like it's not going to be glamorous in the beginning, but by doing it and by, you know, going through the motions and meeting more people, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to keep growing and and then naturally the other stuff will come. Yeah. I mean, I am a student of, so I also used to teach entrepreneurship at Babson and I'm just a student of like starting Mm -hmm. and of entrepreneurship and. I th- was it Dave Grohl from Food Fighters who was just like, just go suck at something and just keep <laughs> sucking at it until yeah. like a magically one day. Like I had no idea how to start a nonprofit. Right. None. Now I will say everyone's like, oh, you're so modest. No, I, I saw an opportunity. Right. Which was that there was a, this gap between design shaping everything and the public right. having no idea really what design was. That's great. Ideas are fantastic. But the execution of like, how do you start a nonprofit? How do you run a nonprofit like a business that's going to survive? I had no idea. Right. But I think so many people get hung up on, I don't know, when you can. I mean, I I read a book. What a novel idea. (laughs) You know, and some people just stop at that. Like, they're like, I mean, the same is true. Like, we want to start a podcast at the museum. Oh, very cool. So much audio that comes out of our events. Yeah. And we started recording it. I have no idea how to what to do with a podcast. Google is amazing. <laughs> like I'm always surprised. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of young people, right? And and this is great because this is the angry millennial show. Yeah. So I I deal with a lot of deal with. I work with a lot of millennials, and I, it's great too. I think you are one. Yeah, yeah. I'm right on the edge. I'm right on the edge. <laughs> Thirty five, right? I think nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm amazed at what I would. This is supposed to be like the internet generation, like right. fully digitally native. Yeah. And I hear someone. No, I hear this all the time. Like, I don't know how to do that. Or they just stop. And I'm like, you have every resource (laughs) at your fingertip. I mean, anything that you want to do. I I don't know. Maybe it's not exaggeration. Like, I daily see millennials not use the tools at their disposal to break through barriers. And I think it's it's a an issue of what becomes a norm. 
right? Yeah. Because you figure if you tell someone 20 years ago, hey, phones are going to be like mini computers in your pocket. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. They're going to have bigger hard drives than your desktop has right now right. if you have one. And, you know, it's going to take this computing thing to a whole new level and it's going to be entertainment as well as information. They'd be like, nah, you know. But then and they'd look, probably be like, their heads would explode. Yeah. And they'd oh, be like, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I wish I had one. Yeah. And then you figure, you see them now and you go, no. Oh, really? <laughs> just tweeting? That's all you do? Just, yeah. just Twitter and Grubhub? That's the only things yeah. that you know how to do on your phone? I'm amazed. I, I don't know. I guess that's one of my, if I can be angry on the yeah, show. No, please. It's like it's explicit too. Feel yeah. free to let it fly. Yeah. I just think it's <laughs> ridiculous when I hear young people sort of say like, oh, I have this idea, but like I don't really know what to do with it. And right. it's like, go to the library. Like even if, forget the internet. Forget the right. internet even exists. Right. And just get a book. I mean- yeah. Read how to, you know, if you're interested in like starting, I don't know, a cooking show or right. you're interested in, um, you know, starting a program in your community to, you know, help kids in need. Like, well, A, there's probably already stuff out there you can get involved in and learn from. Mm-hmm. But B, take a class, go to General right. Assembly, go right. to, I mean, there's just the amount of resources. And so what it, what I'm worried about, and we're starting to shape some design museum programming around this, is that millennials and younger it's more of a mentality and more of a way of thinking or not thinking of mm-hmm. sort of like, I can't do this or I don't know how. And it's right. like, why are kids thinking that way? And is our educational system like, yeah. are we educating entrepreneurs right. or are we educating a bunch of people who know how to memorize things? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's scary. Crazy. Even just yesterday I was having a talk with one of the employees here and, um, it, yeah, it, um, so, so they're talking about a company that basically is, um, I guess, I don't want to say a pop-up shop, but educational services for millennials on life. So it's called like adulting oh, as millennials or, some, or something like that. Society of Grownups? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, those guys go. are amazing. But just, I, mean, I love those guys, but the fact that they need to exist, <laughs> I mean, I love that they saw that opportunity and right. they're making it happen. I think it's brilliant. Right. But it just makes me laugh that um, that it's needed, period. Yeah, and there's yeah. the, I think it's the, so we've been doing a lot of research for our next exhibition, which is called Extraordinary Playscapes, which is all about design and play, outdoor play and the importance of play. Mm-hmm. So we're doing tons of research around child development and why play is important. And one, I mean, tons of stuff has come out of it, but this freshman dean from Stanford mm-hmm. just wrote, wrote a book. I forget her name, but it's basically, she, in the book, she says, like, the freshman that, she, that are coming into her school that they can't operate as adults. Like they're not independent humans. Yeah. yeah. And that to me is terrifying because that is the next generation of leaders. And if our next generation generation of leaders don't know how to lead or don't know how to pay a parking ticket, you know, or don't know how to like overcome adversity, you right. know, because they never really had, that's some of the stuff that we're coming up with around the playground thing is mm-hmm. kids aren't really getting to play enough. Right. And, a lifetime of play means a lifetime of trying things and getting your, your skin knees and picking yourself up, getting lost, mm-hmm. finding your way back. Those aren't inconsequential experiences. Those are incredibly important. Right. And when you're not getting those experiences, what's the result? Right. And we're positing that one of the results is you become a freshman at Stanford and you have no idea how to operate as a human. Right. And when you get an F on a test and you're having thoughts about suicide and about yeah. 
you know, your self-esteem is low because of this one thing and you don't know how to overcome that. Right. To me, that's a huge, huge problem. Yeah, no. And, and it's, it's to a point, you know, understandable because you figure if something means a lot to you and it happens, suddenly everything else is just noise, right? right? I mean, for instance, I'll be 100% honest with you. When I was coming up here, it's the first time we've been to ball. I've been to Boston. Well, for this, right? And what we've been doing is in um in different cities, we team up with different companies that would let us record out of there because it's a lot nicer to say, hey, we're recording right next to the train station. It's easy to get to at this company that's you know in line with what we're doing. Um, you know, and it's instead of doing it like out of our apartment, like we usually do. So uh, when I was coming up here, I was stressing about it for three weeks. But I had I was traveling for other stuff and I was going to New York a bunch of times and other places, and uh, and and I sat there and realized up until literally last week, <laughs> I hadn't still done anything about it, and I was like, oh my god, I got to stop. And literally, when I sat down and said, okay, enough freaking out, enough stressing out, just concentrate on this one thing. I literally spent five seconds in Google, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and found Work Bar and was like, hey. Perfect co-op spaces, exactly. you know, co-working it's spaces right would by be South amazing. Station. I mean, that's the kind of thing. And I think, again, I think you and I, as we're sort of like on the edge of this of this generation, mm-hmm. that comes up more and more. Of like, I travel a lot for the museum as we're sort of expanding. That's what I do. Like when I go to, I'd been to San Francisco tons of times, but I never really had to take any public transportation. Right. And it's the BART system, right? Yeah, the BART, but yeah. they have all the Mooney system. There's like all these different systems. So right. it's kind of intimidating, right. gonna be honest. And you know, I was traveling and I was like, so for the museum, I travel on the cheap, the right. cheapest of course. Of cheap. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, I can't be intimidated by this like transit system. Like I gotta so I just Google. <laughs> I mean, I was like, how how do you get a transit card in right. San Francisco? Right. Like those are the things I type into Google. And you're like just like you said, like you just you're Fears get assuaged because you're just sort of like, okay, I'm I've got knowledge, and then you try it and you yeah. fail and you you know these are like maybe sound like stupid little things, but they're important in the grand scheme of your life and of what you're gonna want to do and taking risks and like mm-hmm. in your career is just get the knowledge that you need and try things right. and and fail. I mean, yeah. my I'm hoping with this exhibition that we're doing is that. If a parent goes there, they, they understand or they see that failure is a big part of right. the importance of childhood. Oh, you see it now everywhere. I mean, I even saw a commercial for, what was it, a minivan where the dad is bringing his son back to the car and he's got a participation trophy, but they won. And he's going, wait a second. Like he's in his head. He's like, the boy just won the whole the whole kit and caboodle and he yeah. gets a participation poopy as well. Nah, nah. <laughs> so he takes off the thing and just takes out a pen and writes champs. Nice. And gives it to his son. And uh and it's funny because there's a like a contrasting one where they're getting in the minivan and the dad's like, He did so good. And and the mom's like, he really isn't very good. You know? <laughs> and you see the kid and go, Yeah, I think he likes the idea of playing football. And he's like literally playing with the mouth guard in the back, just <laughs> but you know, maybe he'll get into something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but it's true. I mean, you sit there and 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 I I kind of saw it growing up playing sports and stuff a little bit, but at the same time, you know, confidence is a big thing. Absolutely. But again, the confidence to pick yourself back up is an even bigger thing. I think I agree sometimes. with you. I think that's so much more a part of it. And 
I mean, I grew up, you know, playing sports and not liking the sports I was playing and just was so unhappy until I found a sport that I really loved. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I don't have kids. And so it's easy for me to just to kind of like spout these things and just be like, but I do think it's important to find and be cognizant of what makes the kid happy. And, and also, I mean, this is a lot of research and, and reading has gone into this point, but you know, adults should always just be sort of like, what is important to you as right. a kid? Yeah. And by the way, everything that's important to you is important to me. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so starting with that as like the leading question is I think really important. But then going back to the whole idea around play, these opportunities just need to increase. Right. And it's not just play, um, you know, sports and karate. It's like, right. it's gotta be unstructured play. And right. um, that's what really what the exhibition is about is the importance of outdoor unstructured, exploratory, challenging play where right. kids can actually like take risks. So is it kind of like brain teasers within the kind of, you know, no, it's more about physical, right? It's more about what are the types of outdoor play environments that allow a kid to run, right? Be high with right. the danger of falling, right? To, um, what are the play environments that allow a kid to get lost and hmm. not be inside of their parents? And have to figure out how to get back. What, are there walls in this thing? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's different playscapes have different ways of doing this. Um, how, many, how many do you have, like, put out? Or I, I, This is actually something you're still in development. Yeah, we're still with, developing. Right? We have probably, I think, 30 or 40 playscapes from around the world that we're going to highlight in wow. the exhibition. Yeah. Wow. And some do, you know, there's different categories. One big, another big part of the exhibition is accessibility. Mm-hmm. So for people of different abilities to have the chance to play. Right, right, so right. So there's a lot of uh, interesting playgrounds around the world that are addressing that, including one here in Boston, nice. the Menino Playground. Um, but there's also this whole track of, and I'll say it on the podcast because we're probably not going to, it's not going to make it into the exhibition because it might be too radical. Right. But this whole idea of dangerous play. Oh, like Hungry Games? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah. But hey, I will say like, and this is, I want really want to do a whole part of the exhibition where people describe their childhood because right. my childhood, and I had a, an amazing childhood because we lived by like woods basically. Right. And by the way, we're, we're toying with this idea of, so we'll have different case studies about the different, different playgrounds. One of the case studies is just going to be called the woods, <laughs> right? Just because like, all I can think of is the M. Night Shyamalan yeah. movie. <laughs> the village. Yeah, the village. Yeah. But the idea that, so my whole childhood was, I I was unsupervised for hours at a time. I, you know, it's funny. I was Six, just, seven yeah, hours? I was just talking to someone about it the other day, about how when you went outside to play, don't get me wrong, I had video games too. Like, oh, I, yeah, I liked playing here. video games, but a big part of it was you'd go to your friend's house, you'd yeah. run outside, you'd do whatever for hours. Hours. And you were alive and okay. Yeah. And it's scary to say that nowadays, I don't know if, if it's so much that it's realistically not possible or maybe we just put more attention to some of the dangers that are there. It's, and a, just, it's a lot of... Um, and I, I, this is where I got to be careful because right. no one wants kids to be like abducted no, or of course, hurt. That's what I mean, right, right? But sort of so some of this other studies. So in the late seventies, early eighties, there was that's the time when like media was just exploding. So you got to right. think about that. TV mm-hmm. was just, I mean, Dateline, twenty twenty, right. like these yeah. shows were just yeah. exploding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there were uh, two pretty high profile abductions. Um, I think Adam Walsh one, mm-hmm. and that that spawned like America's Most Wanted and whatnot terrible tragedies. So as a society, we really clamp down right. on that. Right. But the truth of the matter is, so if you look at the data, the number of um, abductions by non-family members right. has stayed level <laughs> from before that time right. to after. Yeah. 
but the number of abductions by family members have increased dramatically really? over the last few decades, wow. yeah, which is scary. But the fact of the matter is, and it, it's different for urban and rural, and I sort right. of grew up in the middle, but right. I was in the woods yeah. with knives, <laughs> fire. I mean, we built forts. I mean, our imaginations were... That was the crucible that right, created right. our imaginations right. and our creativity. Yeah. And I look at my brother and I and how where we ended up as far as careers and the risks that we've taken. Um, and again, I can only talk from my own experience, but I know that those times and the ability to be free and figure things out. I still, I mean, I remember a time my brother and I were in the woods and it, it got dark and it was pitch. We couldn't see the hand in front of your face, and we we're like, "How do you? Where do we go?" Right. We formed bonds of fellowship between brothers. Right. And with friends that I know that helped me. That's how I build relationships today, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm worried about sort of the overprotected kid. And there's an amazing article in the Atlantic from a couple years ago. That was the title. I'm worried about not having those opportunities. And I guess my way of approaching that worry is to do this exhibition. Yeah, <laughs> I got to yeah, do yeah. it with what I can using the tools that we can. And, but we, I don't know if in the exhibition we're going to be advocating for like starting fires and like playing with hatchets, but there are some play advocates who do. Oh yeah. And there's, there's a playground in uh, the UK called the land and it's, um, it's, it's walled in. It's quite large. There's only one adult allowed in the entire place. And oh, it's wow. basically, she, she, I think it's her, she's just like the play advocate and she's there to make sure just like nothing really right. terrible happens. Right, right, right. But there's six-year-olds in the land starting fires, like cutting down trees, wow. swinging from like the tops of buildings that they've built. Yeah. And the first reaction when people, so there's a film about the land that we want to screen as part of the exhibition and I show some scenes from, and people are like, oh my God, yeah. that's crazy. And I'm like, well, so what was your childhood like? And it's almost like they forget and they're like, I was in the woods and I was like starting fires and we, you know, we were running around and our parents didn't know where we were. And I'm like, that is exactly what they're trying to create with the land. Right. Um, But people, you know, it's funny. We, we like um, a person I listen to a lot is like Alan Watts, right? His, his, his lectures and stuff like that. And he always talks about how uh, a lot of times we, as adults, start thinking that we can tell children what to do and we right. know better. But in reality, a lot of times you don't look at it like uh, that adults are the next generation who should be teaching us how yeah. to do things. Exactly. And when you start thinking of it that way, it gets really interesting because, like you said, as children, we were a lot more confident. We took a lot more risk. We did all these things and we were a lot more resilient, right? Exactly. I That's a great word for it. Like I was made of rubber for the first bunch of years of my life. Exactly. And I got older and started breaking bones. But still, sure. I kept going. You know, and uh, and and but as an adult, you know, I guess when 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 the the weight of the world comes in, rent, bills, yeah, <laughs> taxes, right? You start all of a sudden feeling like you just have to be this, oh, you know, yeah. and you just have to kind and of. That's a good point because that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Is adults need time to play and mm-hmm. to explore and to challenge themselves in a low risk environment, right? Um, yeah, I agree completely. And that, you know, maybe we should have some adult, you know, playscapes. I, honestly, I am, I am so down because yeah. I mean, when you have kids, right? Like I take my kids, a lot of times there's parties at like um, ball pit kind of places yeah, yeah. and I'm in there. Believe <laughs> it. Oh yeah. You know, and, it's important. It's, yeah. there was a, there's a quote that we we're going to have in the exhibition. Um, it's from a World War II era parks advocate. What was her name? Terrible with names. Yeah. Same here. But she said, I'd rather break a bone 
than break a soul because mm. the bone can heal, but the soul yeah. probably won't. Wow. That's deep. Jeez. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. yeah, get out there, mix it up, like get dirty. Right. And it's, it, it's super, I hate to like, I think we've been, I've been maybe implying a lot about parents, but right. municipalities and cities, you know, a lot of times it seems like the maintenance department designed the playground, <laughs> not like the play advocates and right. the parents and kids. Right. And that's where you see a lot of the first playgrounds. Actually, I think it was the first sand pit ever was in Boston. Wow. And it was basically a place where kids could just, in the urban environment, dig and build stuff and right. mess with things. And now you'd be hard-pressed to find playgrounds that have sand because yeah. sand's hard to maintain. Right. But when it's a, like a concrete slab or like asphalt, you can't manipulate the environment. You can't. You know, try and you think things. Most of them now have like that, um, the rubber mulch, and, that, and even that you yeah, can't really manipulate. You can't either. manipulate, and you know, I, I will say that you know, so everything's got two sides. Like the rubber, sort of like pour in place, has uh, helped a lot with sort of like head injuries, and right. so I don't. The question around it is, you know, what a classic for one of our exhibitions, right? Is what have we lost and what have we gained? And, right. You know, we've Trying gained to find a that lot. Happy medium, right? Right. Technology and materials, and a lot of playgrounds and landscape architecture. Uh, landscape architects are doing it right. Right. But what have we lost in the, you know, I I can't open up Facebook without reading like about a parent who like brought charges. Someone's brought charges against them because they let their kid like walk to the donut shop by themselves to like pick up donuts. Like my parents would would have been in jail (laughs) because (laughs) my mom basically opened the back door and we just went everywhere that's actually a really fun part of the exhibition or eye-opening that we're going to include is a i think it was a family in the uk and they charted so the the, i'm going to get these numbers wrong but just for illustrative purposes the grandfather or the great-grandfather was able to walk eight miles the radius around their home right so there's like a fishing hole that he walked unsupervised right and the grandfather was uh, allowed to walk three miles right uh, unsupervised the mother I think was about a half a mile. Wow. And the kid is not even allowed to leave the driveway unsupervised. Yeah. So this change, again, what have we lost? I right. guess that's the, that keeps coming back to that yeah. same point. And, it, and it's, you know, so I know we're, we're, we're coming short on time here, but it's been, it's been awesome, you know, chatting with you and I'm sure we'll, we'll definitely keep in touch. Cool. But one thing I want to know is um, when you started this in Boston and you started getting the momentum, when was it that you decided to, Branch out. What was that like? You know, mm-hmm. were, the, were the grants you got here structured to go there? Or would you have to get new grants for these new new cities? Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we, I guess, three years into it, we, you know, hesitate to say we were we were feeling successful. Like we were feeling like we were onto something, mm-hmm. and we had a great base of support here in Boston, mm-hmm. and things were going well. But for me, you know my whole thing is I've never wanted to work for a struggling nonprofit. Like I never want to start one. I didn't want my employees to be struggling. And also I'm about making just epic impact. Mm -hmm. And our, our motto or our slogan is design is everywhere. And so are we. And so design is in more places, just Boston. Yeah. 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 Uh, So the notion was, well, also I should say like financially and as a, you know, from a business standpoint, we don't have a lot of the same funding mechanisms that a traditional museum has. Like mm-hmm. I can't really name the West wing after you, you know, right. uh, or, you know, now bathrooms are getting named in museums. Really? Oh, that's the new frontier of funding <laughs> is, is getting this bathroom named after right. you. That's where you spend a lot of your time at the yeah. museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't have a lot of those. I mean, we have similar, you know, you can underwrite exhibitions and have your name on that. You can underwrite uh, positions and, oh, and wow. employees. 
So there are opportunities, but not uh, in the same way right. that a traditional. So my notion was, and I you know proposed to the board of like, you know, one way for us to really be sustainable and to have an even broader impact is to say, look, we're going to go to other cities where there's also design and there's also right. huge communities of people who want to learn more about it. And that's easier said than done. I mean, right. We, right. we were in, uh, we did Mass Challenge here in Boston. It's, it's the largest uh, startup incubator in the world. Oh, wow. And um, we were one of the only nonprofits in there. So we're surrounded by like high growth tech startups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our mentors were sort of like, grow, grow, grow. And we were <laughs> like, oh my God, like if I can make it to Wednesday, like I'll be so happy. <laughs> All right. But they really pushed me to think like how we would actually do it. Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking about different cities and um, I was looking at Providence, Rhode Island. It's, mm-hmm. it's close to yeah. Boston. I thought yeah. it's perfect. My wife went to RISD. Like we have a lot of connections there. Um, but at the same time, Long story short, we had added two board members to our board mm-hmm. who are based in Portland, Oregon, mm. because they were they're both part of a real estate development firm mm-hmm. that was building buildings in Boston. They loved the museum, really supported us here. And I think once they kind of heard that we were looking to kind of expand, they were like, come to Portland. Right, we got you. And yeah, yeah they brought me there. They flew me there. They introduced me to so many amazing people. And one of them also, I mean, she's been a great mentor to me, was sort of like, do you want to be a regional organization or a national organization? Mm. And I was like, national. Yeah. She was like, well then come to Portland. And she was right. We had to mature as an organization like overnight. Right. It's one thing to like run a small arts nonprofit in one city where the founder is. It's another to have a branch, you know, on the other coast. And so we did that, you know, when we've raised money there, we, like I said, we just launched in San Francisco and we can really reflect the needs of those particular communities. Mm -hmm. Where in Portland, it's really about like the maker movement and about right. creative entrepreneurship. Yeah, we do a lot of programming around yeah. maker, the maker movement and entrepreneurship. So, the model I think is malleable enough where it can really respond to needs on the ground while also generating through the foundation mm-hmm. this national conversation about design. Right. Nice. Well, listen, it's been amazing. I quite honestly so glad. I mean, the time out we reached out and said, "Hey, look, yeah, I appreciate it." Um, so I hope you had a, you know enjoyed your experience. Yeah, it was fun. And we went in a lot of different places. We did, and that's the fun part. Is, <laughs> Absolutely, you know, like is I tell people all the time, like we might do. We're going to consider start to start doing ones where we have a specific topic. Nice, and we'll have a couple guests that just want to chime in on it, kind of like a panel. Yeah, right? that's great. Um, but I think the one-on-one interviews are the best because people who don't know about that person might know them in their in their professional capacity, right. but now they just hear all these things about what they think, what they, how their childhood was and coming up with and that kind of thing. And it's, it's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, it works. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right, Sam, take care.